Blog Talk Radio. Like 
a way for me to see the world, to travel, to, you know, really stand out and be something different. So off I went to uh, college and got a master's degree in uh, earthquake engineering and went off to work. And then I found myself sitting in an office, tapping numbers into a computer and thinking, oh, my God, I can't do this for the rest of my life. Um, And so I realized, um, I remember going to see a movie. It was uh, Legends of the Fall, actually, if you see how far back that was, and just thinking something inside me is not alive anymore. And and I started thinking about, you know, when I was a child, I wrote and I read and I performed and sang and danced and all these creative things. And then the second I got to college and really dived into my studying, I, I let go of all that. And so this kind of creative part of me was just, it just, it was dying. Um, and I just knew that I needed to find a way to rekindle that. And that's when I started writing again and started, um, I joined a theater company and, you know, started really rekindling that creative aspect of me. So before we get into the gamut of questions and topics <laughs> I'd like to discuss with you, please tell our audience what is the latest with you. What are you working on now and as of late? So as right now, I am working on um, – no, I don't know whether to call it my first, my second, or my third novel <laughs> – <laughs> but it's technically, it's technically my third novel. If we're only counting the ones that actually got finished, it's it's my third novel. So, uh, you know, my first novel is my practice novel that is sitting right here under my desk in dust, waiting for <laughs> its moment of glory. And uh, my second novel is sitting in various inboxes in New York City on the quest to find an agent and a publisher. And my right. third novel is in the very early stages of just figuring out what it is and what it's all about, which is the really fun part. So what are the differences between these three novels? Are they uh, a series, the same theme, or are they all entirely something different? Well, they're all standalone novels. Um, so they're, you know, different characters, not a series. But I... I I tend to write along similar themes and I write a lot about um, freedom and self-discovery and I write particularly about young women who are coming of age and just kind of figuring out who they are versus who the world expects them to be or their families or friends or whoever expect them to be. Um, and so that seems to be common themes that uh, that run through that, which of course, it just ties right back into the story that I just told you about myself and who I expected to be and then discovering, you know, who I really was. So, um, you know, they always say, write what you know. And, and I, it, it, you know, I, I don't think that should be taken literally, uh, but kind of digging below right. the surface to figure out what that's really about. And uh, it's, I, I realize that I write about myself a lot, <laughs> but in... Um, in a way that most people wouldn't realize that that it, it was really me. So, yeah, it's interesting how these themes kind of surface. Uh, you may, I maybe didn't set out to write on those themes, but uh, they're the ones that keep coming back. 
Yeah, we're always told, write what you know. Uh, but that is such, that could be interpreted in so many, so many different broad ways. Some people, as you said, take it literally, and, and mm-hmm. a lot of people do not. And I'm, I'm with the ones who, who do not. So anyway, Lisa, as you and I well know, the best writers are the ones who really exceed at telling magnificent stories. Talk about why you think the power of storytelling is so crucial and important. Well, I think it's just such a basic human need is to tell stories. I mean, it's the way that we used to exchange important information, a life-saving information, uh, and it still is in a different way. I mean, I think, you know, when you pick up a good book, uh, even if it's on a topic that you have, you know, you, you can't relate to the the situation, um, there's something about that that you grab onto and you see something of yourself in there. And I think that's what's so powerful about, um, certainly about fiction, is you sometimes you don't even realize that that's, that's what you're reading there, but you're, you know, we're always learning about ourselves and, and, and kind of questing to understand who we are. And I think so much of that is, uh, is found through story. Um, but I think it's also just a great way to just communicate your inner thoughts as well. You know, we, um, we all have so much going on in our heads, and I think it's so powerful be, to be able to convey what, what you're feeling and what you're thinking and put it out into the world and then have somebody kind of raise their hand and go, me too, that's how I feel, I get it. And I think that's just such a powerful connection. Um, I was talking to somebody the other day, um, I, I'm sure we'll talk about this later, but I, have a, I write a nonfiction blog on a completely separate topic. And uh, I met a woman who, writes a, who runs a similar site uh, in the UK, and we actually met for the first time. But we had connected online through our mutual stories, you know, her being one of those people who said, yeah, heard my story and said, me too, me too. And I think that connection is so powerful uh, and the internet has just made the world such a small place and made it so easy for us to find our tribe, to find the people that we relate to. I think it, it's incredible. Yeah, that's, that's so true. Let's talk about a book you've written, which I feel is groundbreaking. Life Without Baby, Surviving and Thriving When Motherhood Doesn't Happen. Talk about the book's genesis and why and what led you to write this important book? Well, I, um, I, as I mentioned before, you know, I set off to write fiction. That was always what I wanted to do. And then uh, life in, intervened, and uh, I, I got married, and I decided that I, was, I wanted to have a family with my wonderful husband, and it didn't work out. Uh, and so I wrote, uh, I started writing about that and, you know, talking about, as we were talking about getting your, your thoughts and feelings out and started kind of journaling, uh, which became some essays, which became ultimately a memoir, which is called uh, I'm Taking My Eggs and Going Home, How One Woman Dared to Say No to Motherhood. Um, and that was me just needing to get my story out in the world and, and have somebody else hear it. Um, and then out of that, uh, you know, I started blogging about this at the same time, uh, and slowly, bit by bit, this community of like-minded women began to form. 
and women saying, this is my story. The same thing happened to me. You know, how do we, how do we deal with this when for many of us, you know, parenthood is something that we expect to do. I mean, I, I, I never really, it wasn't something that I was, I was kind of like, I have to do this. It was just an expectation. You know, I'm going to find this, settle down, find a man, well, not settle down, but, you know, I'm, I found this man that I want to have a family with and it's not working out. Um, and so that, that, community just grew with time um and now this is five years later um i have all this information and all this experience that i've gathered from you know from my own experience and talking to other people through this community i just felt that i needed to to kind of bring an end to my own story uh was to gather this information together and share it with other women so that um you know, I find, my, find myself, when I realized that I wasn't going to be able to have children for, for a number of different reasons, um, just trying to figure all that out. Like, who am I now? Who, who am I? What, how do I get through this? How do I deal with these emotions that I'm feeling that are just not, don't feel rational and don't feel like me? And what is that all about? And just feeling very kind of alone and isolated um, so I wanted to put this together into a book so that other women who find themselves in that situation, and it's a lot more women than uh, than you perhaps realize, it's still one of those very taboo topics that is not really talked about openly. But I just wanted to put my experience and what I learned into one place, into one book, so that when this happens to other people, they've got something to turn to that can then work their way through that. We authors, when writing anything biographical, tend to relive the moments that we reveal. How was this reliving of those moments for you when you wrote, I'm taking my eggs and going home? Hmm. That is a great question. That's a great question. Um, when I first started writing, I kept trying to make my stories funny. I kept trying to find the humor in my experience. Um, and what I, what I was really doing was just skimming the surface. And in fact, I was, I was trying to, um, you know, I was trying to brush over the, the parts of the story that really hurt and, and find the funny parts. And it just wasn't resonating with people when I gave people parts of the story. Uh, and I found this uh, amazing book coach by the name of Jenny Nash. And she just, she just called me on it. And she said, you know, you, you are, you're avoiding writing this story, which was true because I, I never really wanted to write the story. In fact, I remember taking an exercise in a workshop once where a wonderful teacher had us write down um, the one thing that we didn't want to write about. So I went off and wrote that I didn't want to write about infertility. And she never mentioned it again. She never asked us to do anything with that, but over time that it just kind of ate away at my, you know, at my mind and thinking, you know what, I, I actually do have to write this story. So, so what I had to do then when I got all this, this material that was just, it was just shallow, but, but mildly humorous was I had to go back in and really dig down to those core emotions that, that I'd skirted over so it was hard. It was really hard because you do have to live some of the, the, the kind of, you know, the really uglier parts of 
your story that you might not really want to um, admit to in polite company, you know, um, and then you put it out there. And uh, I, I remember giving a copy of the book to my mother and thinking, oh, God, what is she going to think of this? Uh, and in actual fact, she surprised me with her response because she actually really appreciated, you know, just being able to read that on her own uh, without us having to kind of, you know, talk about it face to face, which can be really awkward for both of us. Uh, right. She actually really appreciated getting the story, you know, and really understanding, you know, what I was going through and what I'd been through. So um, that was a really encouraging moment. And as hard as it was to put some of that, that the, you know, the really hard emotional stuff down, it's it was worth it. it it's worth just digging down those extra couple of layers to really, really get to the truth of the story. One five-star Amazon review of I'm Taking My Eggs by Jennifer Ortega states, like many other difficult subjects, infertility is often taboo, even between close friends. Lisa's memoir creates a platform from which these issues can be discussed. Her story is endearing with moments of gentle humor and humbling honesty. It really presses the reader to think about the way our culture defines womanhood and what happens to a woman's identity when she finds she cannot reproduce. This is a definite discussion starter for your next woman's reading group. Lisa, this is why we write. Creating discussions and dialogue is so important, don't you think? Yeah, and I um, I need to uh, meet Jennifer and take her out for lunch. <laughs> that was, that's wonderful. Thank you for reading that. Uh, you made my day. Uh, but, yeah, yeah, it, it is. I mean, um, you know, we, we all have experiences in our life, uh, all different, all unique, uh, but finding that common ground and, and putting a voice to to your experience, uh, and again finding that person who says, "Yeah, me too," or "I didn't know about this, I didn't understand this, I want to talk about this more with you," and that that is that is what it's all about. Um, you know, we we sometimes we we are so isolated in our modern world. And so to just be able to connect with people and start those conversations and have those really open and frank discussions, I think it's really powerful. I know the Life Without Baby series and community help so many women and couples get through their tribulations. But how did your husband handle it? How did these books affect his life and world? Yeah, another good question. <laughs> he, uh, I mean, we definitely dealt with this very differently. I obviously was, I mean, I'm, I'm actually a, a very private person and did not talk about this to a lot of people when I was actually going through it. So to put all those details of my life down in print uh, was really kind of an, an unusual thing for me. Um, but, but he... Um, you know, he understood my need to do this and was very supportive of it. But he didn't Great. read the book. Um, yeah, he didn't. He said, I, I know what happened. I was there. I don't need to read it again. <laughs> and I yes. completely respected that. 
Um, yes, but I think yes. it opened some interesting discussions for him as well. Um, you know, uh, that people did read the book and kind of, you know, not didn't ask him personal questions about about his side of the story, but just kind of opening that discussion again. But it was, I mean, he, I think it was, you know, if he did, if he'd have been given his brothers, I think that perhaps he would have preferred to have kept our story between the two of us. But at the same time, he was also very supportive. He was very, and still continues to be very supportive. I'm very happy to hear that. Lisa, you have graciously agreed to read from one of your works for us. Can you set up the piece before you read it? Uh, Actually, I'm going to make it really uh, nice and easy. And I'm going to start with... uh, with the opening of I'm taking my eggs and going home Uh, just because I I think it just, it it sets up nicely um, kind of where I was at the, at the kind of height of my journey before I realized that, you know what, this is, this is not going to happen and nor should this happen. So um, I'll read just a, a little bit and try not to waffle on too long. Okay. So this is the prologue. I've made a decision. When my husband dies, I'm going to adopt a child. I'll wait until Jose's gone, and then I'll become a mother by adopting through the foster care system. If I want to have children, I'm going to have to do it without him. It will be better for everyone this way, especially him. For five years, we've tried to have a baby of our own. We've hopped from one crazy train to the next, from fertility doctors to Chinese medicine practitioners and around again. We've even dabbled in witchcraft. At my lowest point, I hatched a plot to steal another woman's baby. I cased the local hospital, found a glitch in security, and formulated my getaway plan. All I needed was a willing accomplice. But Jose's annoying practicality got in the way, and my plan fell through. So now I'm on the crazy train, all by myself, plotting a new scheme, and wondering how much longer that same pesky husband is going to stick around. It's a shame it has to be this way, but it's for his own good. We witness what it takes to go through the foster-adopt process, mandatory visits with biological parents, the late-night arrival of a frightened child, the bitter disappointment when that child is taken away again. We understand what's involved in bringing a damaged child into our home. I'm prepared to do it, but I'm not prepared to put my husband through it. He's been through enough already, trying to fulfill my dreams. So I'm just going to wait until he's dead. For his sake, I only hope it's quick and painless. I glance across the living room, peeking at Jose over the top of the natural health magazine I'm pretending to read. The cat that has settled in my lap opens one eye and shifts into a new, even more comfortable position. Jose continues to tap away at his computer, surfing the internet for a new bike he can't live without, oblivious to my plans for a future without him. I used to worry about the time he spent on his computer and mobile phone. I was afraid of brain tumors and radiation-related cancers. I'm not afraid anymore, just curious if this is what will finally do him in. Or maybe he'll have a heart attack, a stroke, or a bike accident I've feared for so long. I'll take anything quick. I'm 39. I don't have time to nurse him through a long, drawn-out illness. I'm surprised and somewhat perturbed to see that Jose looks pretty healthy. All the stress I put him through during the last five, five years, I'd expected him to look older, more haggard, just a little closer to death. So it's typical of him to be contrary and perk up just when I need him perking down. 
Under the instruction of all those damn fertility doctors, he's lost weight, lowered his cholesterol, brought his blood pressure down into the safe zone. He's cut his wine consumption so low you'd think he was pregnant. This means that the fatty liver is probably not going to get him either. Maybe it will just be old age. Jose is 15 years older than me, and once upon a time we wished it could have been different, that I'd been born earlier, or he later, or that we'd met sooner. But when I was 20 and Marion for the first time, I'm sorry, when he was 20 and Marion for the first time, I was five and sneaking jammy dodges from my best friend Simon, out of view of our teachers. Now the age difference should work to my advantage. The men on his mother's side barely make it past 50, and Jose has just turned 53, so the odds are in my favor. I start to calculate how long I have if I still want to be eligible to adopt. I think I'm safe at 45. Jose's got six years to get busy dying in that case. But if he lasts more than 10 years, I'll be 50. Will they still give a child to a 50-year-old single mom? And will I be able to handle it, especially with a child who will need special care? Would it be fair to raise a child with only one older parent? What if something happens to me? I need to get on with this. It's a shame I have to do it without Jose, though. He would have been such a great dad. I can easily imagine him teaching our little girl to ride a bike or perching a little boy, a mini version of himself, in his lap and pressing his finger up to a torch beam so our son can see his bones inside. But Jose is no longer in the picture. He's not part of my plan. I don't know how much life he has left, maybe decades, maybe not. Uh, but I don't want the rest of our lives together to be. But I want the rest of our lives together to be good, even if it's short. But lately, that life hasn't been good at all, and I wonder if he regrets marrying me. He's already done his family stint and has two grown children. But for five years, our entire married lives, we've been trying to have a baby together. He's been doing it for me, his young wife, who always wanted a big family, and he's done whatever was required of him. He's had his testicles slide up, sliced open and stitched back together again. He's driven two hours in L.A. traffic to be stuck with an acupuncturist needle. He's been subjected to a steady regimen of pills and supplements, submitted to the hands of faith healers, debated into plastic cups, and provided me with sex on demand, whether he wanted it or not. He's held my hand while doctors perform miracle treatments on me, and he's held all of me tight when I cried because they didn't work. So I'm not going to put him through it. Through, I'm not going to put him through it anymore. I'm just going to wait until he's dead, and then I will become a mother. I want to jump ahead a little bit forward, because um, I, I, sure. I fear I'm giving a, <laughs> a bad, a bad uh, representation of the, of the story here. So I'm just going to jump a little bit further. Further. Um, for a second, I think about Jose being gone. I imagine his face without that smile I love so much. I see him myself laying a single rose on his chest and kissing his cold, waxy cheek. I think about hearing summer wind again and knowing he's not there to dance with me. But I can't think all about, about this now. I have to think about my baby. I'm going to make tea, Jose suddenly says, getting up from his seat. Would you like some? He catches me by surprise and intrudes on my dark fantasies. I check my facial expressions and force it down into something more relaxed, stretching my eyebrows to iron out the thought wrinkle that always bunches between them, and letting my lips drop from their tight purse position into a neutral smile. He always knows when I'm deep in thought and will ask me what I'm thinking about. I hope he doesn't ask this time. I don't want to have to tell him. I was making plans for when you're dead. I'd love some tea, I say, in the most nonchalant voice I can muster. 
He has no idea of the scheme I've concocted. He's oblivious to the clock now ticking down slowly until his ultimate demise, a time bomb in an action movie with me as the evil villain who's just pushed the big red button. Would you like a piece of gingerbread too, he says, looking, through me, through, looking at me through sly eyes as if he's asking me if I'd like to commit cardinal sin with him. This is, this is one of the things I love most about Jose, how he can make even the most innocent thing to seem like a, a great adventure, how he takes the simplest of my British pleasures, tea and gingerbread, and gives it a passionate Latin twist. Whenever he asks, how would, you, how would you like to come for a bike ride with me, or do you want to walk for a cup of coffee? His eyes sparkle with the excitement of a temptation, and I know that if I go, it's going to be the thrill of my life. Gingerbread, I say. Don't mind if I do. Uh, He grins and disappears into the kitchen. In that moment, the dark balloon of my grim fantasy explodes and the absurdity of what I've been telling myself snaps in my face. My great plan, my infallible solution to all our problems is to wait for the man I love to die so that I can be a mother. This man who'd walk over broken glass for me, the man I want to spend the rest of my life with, a man who can turn gingerbread into an erotic indulgence. I laugh out loud. It's the only decent response to my own twisted logic. Bravo. Opening oh, of the book. Thank you. Goodness. Thank you, I was you. so into that, locked in, and <laughs> you did a masterful job. Uh, that opening was awesome. It, it was so good. Um, let's talk about Lisa Mansfield. The person. Where did you grow okay. up, and what was your childhood like? Um, I grew up in the north of England uh, in a big city that most people have probably never heard of, which is Sheffield, um, and that is uh, not too far from Manchester, which um, m- many more people have heard of. Uh, and my childhood was probably uh, the worst possible childhood for a writer. I had two wonderful parents who uh, stayed married uh, until my father passed away. Um, I have two brothers who I got along well with. <laughs> so, so all that, you know, that, that great juicy childhood trauma that you use in your writing, I, I really didn't have. <laughs> so it was normal. <laughs> it was, I had a, yes, about as normal as a childhood as, as anyone could hope for. <laughs> and what were some of the books and authors that inspired you in your youth? Uh, I mean, when I was a little girl, I read all the Enid Blyton books. <laughs> you know, they were just such uh, such great adventures, and uh, I always related to Naughty Amelia Jane, who was uh, you know this terrible little girl who got into all kinds of trouble. Um, but I loved I loved good adventure stories. Um, and stories that took me to places that I'd never been before. So I loved reading about uh, ancient Egypt and, um, you know, kind of stories of, of the jungle. Uh, and then I, uh, of course, you know, then I discovered, um, a, uh, oh, I've gone blank, uh, Jackie Collins, who gave me my uh, other education. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, but, <laughs> but I... Uh, I, I, it's funny, I, I mean, I, I read a lot, I, I liked a lot of humor books, um, but it wasn't really until I became an adult that I really became a serious reader. I mean, I always, I always had a shelf full of books, 
Um, but it wasn't until I, I was an adult that I became a serious, a serious reader. Um, and I love uh, my favorite authors right now. I love uh, I love Anne Patchett and I love uh, Kate Atkinson. I, they weave such wonderful, intricate stories. Um, uh, I, book, I just read uh, Celeste Ng's book, uh, Everything You Never Told Me, uh, which is just is, was just a spectacular book that I couldn't put down. I'd like to talk about something very important, not only to you, but many, many writers, and that is building an audience for your fiction. What exactly does this mean to you, and how have you handled this up to now? Uh, well, I have, uh, I think like, like many people, I've, I've struggled with this. I mean, what, what it means to me is finding those people who, you know, relate to the work you put out there, who, you know, kind of trust you as an, as a, as an author and trust the voice and trust that if they pick up your book, you're going to give them something that, that they're going to enjoy. Um, and I, I think it's really hard to do. I mean, I, I know how to do this for nonfiction. I've, I've, I've done it. I know how to do it. It's a, it's a different animal for fiction. And uh, I mean, I would love to turn the question around to you, actually, and ask you about some of the, you know, some of the authors that you've interviewed on your other shows um, and perhaps things that they have found that have, uh, of ways to do that. Because I think it's something that a lot of us struggle with, like you say. Well, uh, I've had a few authors talk about it, and one of the things, the first things they say is knowing your audience. Mm -hmm. Know who you are writing the book for. Know your audience. Then also you have to come up with a marketing plan, just like any other business. And you basically are a business, the business of being an author and selling books. Um, You have to have a business plan, a marketing plan, and a platform. That is the word I hear more than any other word, platform. What is your platform? Building an author platform, and and that is extremely, extremely important. What is your brand? Do you have a blog? Do you have a social media? Are you on social media? And do you know how to work social media, which they say is very important? They also say nowadays you need a video presence. You need videos of your book, little short vignettes of your book and what your book is about. And, of course, it helps when you have a radio show, which is (laughs) something like what I'm doing. And you can have a blog talk radio show just about your book and your plan and and have other authors come on and and discuss and things like that. So, you know, Lisa, there's no one-size-fits-all. It's just sometimes different things for different authors. But you have to, number one, know your audience. And I think that's where it starts. Yeah, and I think, um, I mean, I think also knowing – building on that is, is kind of knowing what that audience is looking for. So kind of understanding, um, you know, the, the, the themes that run through your book. Like I, as we discussed earlier, I write about uh, young women who are trying to find their identity, find their place in the world. And so I think that that audience for that, those sort of stories is, is very clear. Uh, and I think, I think one of the, 
you know, there's so much information about there about platform building. It's such a, a hot buzzword right now. Uh, right. And there's this idea that, like, you know, you just need, you know, a million Twitter followers and you just need, uh, you know, a, a blog and this following and that following. And I think, I mean, my feeling is if you can find, uh, you know, they, a thousand people or a hundred people, or even 10 people just to start with who absolutely love your work. And then those people tell other people, they tell other people, if you've got, a, you know, a million followers who don't give a hoot about what you write. Right. A million followers is nothing. If like you said, they do not give a hoot right. about you or what you write. You, you're so right. Right, right. And I just think, I mean, I think about how I find the books that I love. uh, And so much of it is word of mouth. It's somebody that I trust, a friend telling me, you have got to read this book. And isn't that what we want? I mean, if if 10 people told 10 friends, you have got to read this book, and those people read it and loved it and told 10 people, you've got to read this book. Isn't that what we all want? Yes, nothing, nothing in my estimation beats word of mouth. Um, I yeah. know you have a new short story published in the prestigious Saturday Evening Post called Life is Not a Dress Rehearsal. Can you talk a little bit about that? I can. I'd love to, yeah. Um, so this is, uh, again, it, it follows my theme of uh, identity, and it's a story about the, uh, a young woman who is uh, studying to be an accountant who wants something more. Uh, and what she wants is, well, I don't want to give the end away, but she doesn't, she doesn't really know what she wants. Uh, but she is, uh, joins this uh, community theater group uh, and is stars in a, in a play and something ignites in her. And she knows um, that she doesn't want to be an accountant. She wants something more. And so the story is about her telling her parents that, she doesn't want to do this anymore. So, um, yeah, you know, talking about writing what you know. <laughs> come right back full circle again. Um, Sounds a little so, autobiographical to me. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's not a, yeah, it's a, it, let's say I, I can relate to the experience, if not the exact circumstances. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, and, just, I just, I see the same themes coming up in my work over and over again. And this, this theme of finding, finding yourself and discovering who you are and, and finding your place in the world. In closing, what's next for Lisa Mansfield? What other irons do you have in the fire coming up? My next big push is to, um, is to move into back into fiction to really get focused on getting my novels out into the world. Right. Um, you know, that life without baby is a very important part of my life. And it's, um, it, it's kind of what I think of as my, my giving back my volunteer work. Um, uh, that's not going to go away. Uh, that's, I, I, I love the women that I meet on that site. And it, I know that, that that's an important part of who I am, but, um, time for me to get my fiction out into the world. And I'm excited about that. Um, and, you know, publishing today, 
there's no there's no reason not to get your work into the hands of readers who'll enjoy it. So that's that's my next big my next big push. Sounds like a plan. So um give out any contact information, websites and how people can follow you so you can be contacted if if you'd like. Great. Yeah, I'd love to do that. So uh, my website is lisamantafield.com. And I'm on Twitter, at Lisa Mantefield. Uh, you can find an author Facebook page for author Lisa Mantefield. Um, I hang around on instant Instagram occasionally. Uh, and then for those of you who might be interested in the Life Without Baby site, that's just lifewithoutbaby.com. You have been listening to the Funk Soul Cafe with your host, Robert Batista. Look for my free short stories, Carmela's Dream and My Baby Has No Name on Smashwords.com. My guest has been author Lisa Mansfield. Visit her informational and educational websites at LisaMansfield.com and LifeWithoutBaby.com and feast your soul. Thank you so much, Lisa, for being a guest on the Funk Soul Cafe. Robert, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. What a wonderful show. Thank you, Lisa, and have a great evening.